Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Archonnect Sessions, episode 125. This week, Ken and Donna share their experience at this year's AIA National Convention. The convention took place a few weeks ago from June 21st to 23rd at the Javits Center in New York City. Ken. Hey. You were in New York for a few days before I was. I think you were there, like you were doing a lot of ARCA touring and you got there and got to know the city bikes and whatnot. And then I came along and we did some AIA stuff and some non-AIA stuff. So where do you want to start? Well, you know, I mean, there wasn't really much to do because I was not going to be paying $300 or $700 to go golfing or do any of the ridiculous <laughs> um, guided tours of any of the spaces. I think you know, the thing I hate the most about it, about traveling anywhere is being guided anywhere. So first thing I did when I hit the city is I just jumped on a city bike and realized, oh, shit, I can get around New York City on a city bike. Yeah. And I tried great. to stay as much out of the tunnels as possible and out of cars. And, you know, it's, uh, contrary to my my initial fear, which was I'm going to get killed by just about everybody in New York City, there was absolutely uh, no problems. Even when we, you and I cut across traffic to go to one of the keynotes. <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to an architect in New York who brought up the fact that he rides his bike to the office. And I was like, wow, that's that's kind of it's kind of crazy in, in Manhattan to be commuting by bike. And he's like, no, 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 it's not bad at all. I've, I've only been hit like three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> that's all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's dicey, but it also, you know, things just move slowly in Manhattan anyway. So there's so many pedestrians and so many people pushing carts or whatever. And the cars are everyone just has to move slowly. I think everywhere we went, at least you could only ride so fast. It's not like you could go screaming down the West Side Highway or something. It's a great way to get around a city on a bike. It really is. So we rode to the first keynote event on the bikes. Yeah. yeah. But uh you know, I had, uh, I'm a delegate and I continue to be a delegate primarily. The, the initial reason for being a delegate was to consistently bombard the truthers and try to get them out of there. And I thought this year was going to be pretty interesting because it is set in New York City. And Tony Sharippa, he, he he's a, Tony Sharippa is, um, if anyone knows um, The Sopranos, Stephen Sharippa, who played Big Pussy in, in The Sopranos, that's, uh, Tony's his brother. And uh, Tony's a big muckety-muck in the uh, AIA New York. And so he specifically makes it to the conferences to do the same thing. So him and I really um, have kind of made it our kind of our little bit of a passion project to make sure that they don't really gain any footing and can kind of get drummed out of the out of the business meeting. But fortunately, if something happened in uh, the intervening past year between the two conferences and they were not presenting a motion this year on the on the on the floor of the business meeting. And again, they're not seen on the uh, expo floor. So I think you can take credit for that. Well, I think Tony understands the issues much more. I mean, at least the you know, when they start to try to talk science and these idiots on the internet start talking about like uh, free fall and buildings don't, that doesn't happen unless you have a controlled demolition. Tony actually explained to me why and how it occurred. And I don't want to presume to understand. I understood in the moment when he was explaining to me what actually, why that particular building, which is the one that these idiots, architects and engineers have latched onto. He explained to me why it fell the way it fell and what was the catastrophic collapse in that particular structure that was the reason for that the way it fell the way it did. So he understands at least the technical issues a lot more than I do. And I'm one who goes to these whenever they show up in, in Minneapolis, I go to the film fest that they typically show their film at and, and just kind of track how their message is 
changing and how they're consistently trying to evolve and look for an audience, that gets them more momentum because it, it became pretty apparent to me since I, I've become aware of them that they have been consistently shifting their message to try to find the what is the salient point that's going to get the people to the table to kind of bring a critical mass so that they can actually get a movement to um, coalesce behind uh, reopening this ridiculous thing. So that happened. But, you know, I think the bigger... This was an important meeting for many reasons, obviously because of what has been happening inside the profession with respect to the Me Too movement inside the profession and not just Me Too, but the big celebratory cause that we were supposed to kind of get around was the celebration and the recognition of the 50th anniversary of Dr. Whitney Young Jr.'s speech at the 1968 AIA convention. And, you know, I I don't want to get into too deep into the speech, but he basically put us pointed the finger at us and, and pretty much said we weren't doing, we were non-existent when it came to issues of civil rights. And, you know, he was applauded by the profession when he, he came to speak. And we figure in 50 years, things have changed and, and uh, here we are. And this was pretty remarkable. This is, again, it's a res- it was a resolution to recognize the 50th anniversary. That's all it was. So it was just this very simple gesture to recognize it. And it passed over... Wait, wait, wait. Really? That's all it was? That's all was it was. to all it was. recognize the 50th anniversary yeah. of the Whitney Young speech. And, it would, and, it, and here's, I don't want to be so, you know, uh, to, but basically that's the naming of the resolution, right? So, but the resolution says this resolution would commit AIA to distinguish itself by its social and civic contributions to the cause of civil rights oh, by taking uh-huh. stands on injustice and designing a better built environment that is equitable, inclusive for all. So you figure that would get a unanimous vote. But you would the, think, <laughs> yeah, but you know, given the cowardice of, of most of the profession inside that room, and I shouldn't say that it, it passed 40, it, it was uh, 4,659 votes in favor and six votes against and 33 abstentions. So essentially there were 40 people in that room who are absolute white supremacists, which is interesting because, yeah. you know, they got to hide behind their little clicker as all little weak white men typically do and hide behind their um, their faceless anonymous Twitter accounts and they get to vote against something that was really just a, you know, a no brainer. I mean, it should, it, you know, there should have been a, a standing ovation uh, as soon as they announced this resolution. So I really want to know who the six were. I really do. Who would vote against this? I really want to know who the 39 were because, you know, you're right. Abstaining is just taking the side of the oppressor, right? <laughs> the idea, I mean, look, it's the six are almost not important, right? But the 33 who were so weak and weak and soft, white underbelly that they are, couldn't <laughs> even commit to a, a, a vote of no or yes. I mean, you know, and the funny thing is they thought that they were anonymous, but how do these chuckleheads even think that they were? Because every single person that got a clicker had a number put by their name. Mm-hmm had a number put by their name and that corresponded to the clicker they received. So technically, I don't know if the recording, I mean, again, you know, I'm, I mean, it's not supposed to be an anonymous vote, is it? Our laws are not voted on. Our bylaws are not voted on anonymously, are they? Well, that's what I'm, I wonder because I don't think they are because I think the clicker is new. I think that up until recently it was a voice vote, wasn't it? I don't know. And that's why I think it should be a voice vote again. That's my, that's my proposition is that enough hiding. You know, yeah. If, yeah. if you're so committed to your racist cause, then stand up and say, hell no. Yeah. Let us all see your your courage and the power of your convictions. Let's stand by your vote. Stand by. Stand up and, and proudly announce yourself. No, I'm not going to vote for this. Then we can chase them out of restaurants. We can chase right? them out of restaurants. <laughs>
my God, the time we live in, it is just unbelievable. Good Lord. <sighs> so that, you know, that was the, that was the first one. And I was like, and it's funny because I'm sitting next to my chapter's executive director and my president, and they kind of have me inside, uh, tucked <laughs> off the aisle. Because, uh-huh. and I think that was str- a little strategic because I, you know, they know, I mean, I, I love, I love my executive director, but I think when I, when I blindsided them in Philly um, that year, or was, I forget Philly or Atlanta, when I ha- kind of hit them and they were like, what we're doing, what, who said what? Yeah. <laughs> and they and, corralled you. Yeah. They kind of like, Hey, uh, you, you should kind of, you know, let me know you're going to go rogue. And I'm like, so I think it's a little by design because I really wanted to get up there and just blast the 40 in that room. So that was one of the one of the issues. And I think there was another one um, talking about the diversity pipeline and representation. And I think this resolution was interesting because it was it's really specifically targeted at the idea that the um, I think we're like three percent of African American women inside the profession. Um, mm-hmm. Some some ridiculous low number in, in low, the profession, yeah. low number in terms of FAIAs. So there's a resolution around that, and, and and you know I'm studying the resolution, and one of the things I started to pick up on, and I have to thank Al and S for kind of you know um, coming on the podcast and talking about this, but the the profession is and the bylaws are so gendered now. And it's painfully obvious that we are in a century that in a, in a time where the gendering of the profession needs to end. And mm-hmm. um, it, and I wasn't the only one that said that. And we, so my director was, um, you know, writing notes to say we we're, we need to kind of change this. We're going to bring this up next year. We're going to change all of the bylaws so that they, the gendering of the profession gets removed. So which I thought was a great thing. And then Rosa got up there and really kind of really hammered the point home. She said, and she and Rosa really pointed out where the the inequity is in in the idea that we're still gendering the profession, which I think is is important to recognize. And then it got a little. A little difficult. It got more difficult after that because the the issues are are completely valid and they're worth bringing up. But this specific resolution was focusing on um, African American women inside the profession and the lack of and the historical inequities that exist in the African American community with a special regard to Black women in the profession. This was really focused and targeted to trying to bring that to light and address that issue and and focus on that particular problem. However, rightly noted by others in the room, it was brought up that uh, it wasn't just Black women that were uh, marginalized. There were trans and LGBTQI communities that were also disenfranchised inside the profession. And I think that the, the what happened was we spent a good hour try to resolve the issue of whether or not we need to add their voices to the this particular resolution. Ultimately, it did not succeed. And, and I don't think that their bringing the issue forward was could be seen as a failure. I think actually, quite the contrary, I think it was important that they addressed the issue and talked about it. And I don't want anyone to walk away thinking that, you know, that their issue isn't valid and it, it's not important. I think the reason why I voted down that particular amendment to the resolution was because black women have historically been asked to step back for others. And, you know, feminism has done it. Black Lives Matter was was brought about by black women and it was about black men for the most part. But black women have historically been um, part of the cause of raising the consciousness and awareness of, of America and and being there at the front lines and have been the last to get, you know, a seat at the table, a voice. And I thought that it was important that no, 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 no. 
No, this really is specifically targeted for a specific reason. And I think there's always going to be a next year. We should absolutely bring up the inequities that exist for LGBTQI community and raise that as an issue. We can vote on that next year. I just thought that it was important that we focused on this one. You know, it takes stamina to go to those meetings, and I'm so glad you do and that you pay attention to the nitty gritty of these things, because I think as we resist, as we sort of try to do the work of making a good society, it takes both the the standing up and being loud and the paying attention to the bylaws and the actual contents of the resolutions and trying to figure out really how the best way to to move it all forward is. So yeah, good for you going to the business meeting to begin with and and voting because that's, you have to pay a lot of attention and you sort of start to understand how the sausage gets made and it's it takes stamina. So good for you. Yeah. And and I don't want to forget the last one. The, the last resolution was a floor motion brought that completely blindsided the leadership, which is fantastic. I love these kinds of things. But it was brought to as we were walking in. The motion was being handed out to the um, to the uh, participants, the delegates, and as they were walking in. And this is Resolution eighteen sixteen, and it was the amendment to the Code of Ethics, professional conduct to require the equitable treatment of design professionals and staff of diverse backgrounds and identities, and to prohibit abuse and harassment within our professional community. And again, what I do appreciate about what the AIA has done here for me on the uh, page is is to break out the the votes of the yeses and nos and the abstentions. And this passed with forty two hundred seventy two voting yes, thirteen voting no, and one hundred thirty six abstentions. So again, weak white men, we great to hear those voices because you can be rest assured that some of those men in the room were your bosses. They were some of your mentors. They were the people that you work with alongside of. And it would be great to know where these people work and reside, not to, not to, you know, go after them or anything, but just to kind of be aware that, you know, there are people in the room who don't believe that you have a right not to be harassed at work or to not be bullied at work or that perhaps we shouldn't be worried about the uh and i heard this one too well this this individual happened to do this outside of business it was it was not a professional thing it was a it was it was an outside of work thing and as though somehow it doesn't matter and so this was brought up and by francis halsman faia first woman elected president of the aia new york and what was interesting i think the big i think the interesting thing and it's a small thing but i think it's interesting to point out is that one of the i think it was the secretary on the uh, on the um on the board actually stepped down from the stage and actually addressed from the microphone, which is interesting um, because he kind of situated himself amongst all of us. Uh, mm-hmm. When he had the the high ground, he could have easily stood up on the high ground and, and stood with the with the board, but he tried to stand with the delegates. And in a ridiculous presentation, because he felt, I think he felt as a as a white guy that this was a direct attack on the leadership and and himself. And he decided that he wanted to say, while he appreciated the intent uh, of the resolution. He wanted to make sure that everyone in the audience knew that the leadership was actually taking this up amongst the board. I was like, wow. But then he goes, it's, you know, it's important to know that we're actually working on this, but I appreciate the intent. He kept focused on the word, the intent, which, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means that he completely misunderstood what the intent was. 4,200 people voted yes. And there's about what, 13 board members up there? 
whatever the number, 15 or whatever it is. It was a collective voice of the profession representing everybody in Mm -hmm. the profession saying, get your shit together. We're changing this. (laughs) And that your intent to get down here and say, oh, we got this is bullshit because, yeah, we're here now. And uh, if you had it, you wouldn't have come out with this weak ass statement. And this is what it was directly in response to. I remember Frances talking about when she was presenting this resolution, she specifically cited the weak ass response from the president and the AIA mm-hmm. and the board. So, I mean, you're, the idea that you get down there and you want to be appreciative of the intent without acknowledging your failure, you know, to make a really, really harsh statement about the, what has been going on in the profession just blew my mind. It was laughable. So, I mean, it was, it was really, really good to, you know, to see that it was still severely disappointing to see the numbers voting against or abstaining on, on some of these uh, particular resolutions that seemed by my read to be no brainers. So that's my like, what, 20 minutes on, on the meeting, but I think it has an impact. I think it should have an impact on anyone who's becoming part of the profession. And uh, that, you know, Donna, we hear it all the time, right? Why should I join the AIA? Why should I join this this professional body? And you know, part of why I think you join this professional organization, because the people that you work with and work for are part of this professional organization. They have an impact on your career, whether or not you want to believe it or not. I mean, you know, 13 people voted no, 136 people abstained, 40, nearly 40 people believe that it's not worth our while to invest the time and energy in civil rights issues. So when you say that it's, this doesn't represent you, maybe it doesn't represent you, but you know what? You're going to get represented. Right. You're going to get represented by the racist and the misogynist inside the profession who don't fucking care about your well-being or the community or society or the planet. That's why we have this ridiculous, you know, the part of the thing that was galling me during the whole meeting, and I really, really, really wanted to say it. I'm going to say it next year because I missed my chance to say it this year. And, I, and sometimes like, I'm sitting in these meetings and I'm so filled with anger and, and I can't get this stuff to filter through my brain fast enough. And it really, it dawned on me later what was really bothering me about some of the messaging that was coming out of this business meeting. And it was this, simply this, that Whitney Young's speech in 1968 was of its time. 68. I mean, I I, I was, it was, that was when I was born. So I I know what was going on at that time. The the strife was all written. It was all across the news. It was across the cities, the landscape, the the civil rights movement was the issue of its time. Right. And that issue still remains today. But even bigger than that is that this profession fails, fails daily. To take a stand against this ridiculous government who wants to imprison babies and children into concentration camps along the border, and they still support businesses that want to work with this administration to build more prisons and build a fucking wall that doesn't need to get built. So when we talk about why is this relevant, Whitney Young, if he was alive today, would say, you people just did not learn a damn thing in 50 years. Civil rights and human rights are not political issues. They are issues that affect people, not on a political level, but on a fucking human level. And it's it's so frustrating that we have people up there so weak and incapable of saying clearly in an articulate way that you need to just end this kind of association with these bad actors inside the profession across the board. 
I keep going back. I all the time go back to, and we'll have to figure out which podcast episode it was. But after it was the not my AI, after the hashtag not my AIA event happened, and we had Catherine Donstead on the podcast, and she came back to saying, you know, what it comes down to is that we're not AIA is not a five hundred one three C. We're a five hundred one three A or something. It's a it's a professional organization, not a like charitable organization. So we are a collection of like minded businesses not necessarily a collection of like-minded people. But what I find amongst the people I know in the AIA, and I'm around the most, and I get the most influence and interaction on social media and whatnot with, we are all like-minded people on this issue. And we want to do within our profession the things that as like-minded people we think are important to our society that we exist within and who we work for. So, you know, I still say, and even though, and maybe we'll get to it, Ken and I went to this alternative architecture lobby symposium that happened one of the same days as the AIA conference. I still am standing for the moment and probably for the next few years within the position of, I am going to be an AIA member who tries to change things from within. You know, I don't see another professional organization. There are a couple of others. There's the AMA or something, the ARA, the Association of Registered Architects, you know, they're not, they're so minimally influential that I feel like you have to work within the large, the organization that represents the bulk of our profession. So I will continue to be a member for now, at least for the next couple of years, I would say, uh, you know, and my hope is, and what I see is that more and more young people and people that are like-minded society members, <laughs> like-minded humans, are trying to push the professional organization in the direction that we think it should go. And I don't see how it can't because political conversations are taking over every profession. I mean, I think they are. I, I just think that's the nature of our society these days. So do you want to talk about the commit wall? Oh, yeah. To me, that is an excellent example of how young and active and interested people are having taking the AIA's opportunities to make their own voices heard. So, yeah, talk about that because you were there again. You were there from the beginning of that. Yeah, you know, it would. It's a shame. I think Laura, Laura would be good to talk about because this is really um, one of uh, she was one of the members of the project that put this together. And it was, yeah. it was a wall dedicated to, you know, having members come up and really not just put anonymous notes up there, although many did, as you would expect, but put notes up there. And, and, you know, when you're making a commitment, you're signing your name to something yeah. and, you know, and, and a commitment without a signature is, is, is as empty as anything, but, you know, and a commitment with a signature could be as empty as anything. You could just be doing it for, for whatever reason, but it was at least an, an honest attempt at trying to get people to recognize that there's a lot more connecting us in terms of wanting to put an end to the kind of the past practices that have always been the whispers in, inside the profession, inside the, uh, inside the halls of, of schools of architecture, the demanding, so-called demanding, but really demeaning attitudes of design professionals and educators and uh, the harassment that exists inside the profession. So it was an effort at trying to, you know, commit to changing those. And, you know, what are you going to do? You know, it's not enough to just say, I'm going to commit to it. But, you know, what it was, it was a way of trying to voice an active, bring an active voice to what it was going to take to uh, uh, change the profession. 
and give members a chance to say what they were going to do. Right. And I mean, again, I am definitely not the only architect that says that going to the AIA conference, in a lot of ways, it just gets you excited about the profession again, because you are surrounded by people who are, are architects and are passionate about the things you're passionate about for the most part. I mean, we all talk the same language around buildings and we all went to architecture school. So we all know what that, you know, we have this this commonality amongst us. And to me, this I commit wall was about sort of reminding people that, yeah, this is a time where we come together as a community and can talk about the things that are and reinforce to ourselves the things that are important to us. And so my, our friend and guest of the podcast, Laura Teagarden, was a big part of bringing this commitment wall into being. And then a bunch of other architects that we know, Stephen Parker and others were staffing it, sort of, you know, standing there talking to people about committing to a theme to make a, a better, more equitable future. And so I wrote one and I signed it. And Ken, you wrote one and I think you signed it. And like you said, a lot of people were a little, you know, maybe they're younger. They're a little more nervous about really standing up and signing their name on something that says, I commit to being a voice for people who don't have one in our profession or something like that. But again, I feel like that effort on the part of, again, mostly younger members of our organization is, I just think I can see this getting bigger and bigger. I can. And I, I love it. I thought it was a great project. The only, you know, one of the funny things I had conversations with people around was the fact that we pinned all these comment cards up and I, I desperately wanted them to be in a nice organized grid and other people wanted them to be a much more organic flowing form. So, you know, we're designers ultimately of everything we do. <laughs> yeah. Lots of great architecty handwriting on display on the wall too. What's happening to that commitment wall? Is there some way of archiving it or taking it beyond just the convention? That's a question that wasn't asked. Yeah, we have to ask Laura about that, actually. <laughs> Maybe we could convert it to like an online uh, commitment wall. Well, let's talk to Laura about it. Yeah. You know, even that wall wasn't without problems, I have to say. Not the wall itself, but people's like inability to actually see it, I think, is what you're saying, right? <laughs> what? No. Well, figuratively even. Yeah, you know? exactly. Can I just share this uh, brief story? Please do. Because I think it's it's kind of indicative of the problem that I think many of us find ourselves in. And this situation really kind of illustrates that issue. So Carl Elefante comes up to the wall and um, two of the members of the committee that brought this wall to the conference, young uh, female architect and uh, a young male architect were chatting with Carl about, you know, about the wall. And then they were, you know, just kind of talking about the, uh, the effort. And I wasn't really, I, I didn't hear the whole conversation, but then this F, walks up former <laughs> an, an AIAF member <laughs> and, yeah I'm sorry yes uh, an FAIA former president and uh former principal at uh, Paycop Free walks up and and just interrupts the conversation walks over to to, to Carl and, and just you know interrupts the conversation and proceeds to shake and I happen because you know when you're having when you notice there's a conversation behind you and you know the party's involved and you know oh there's the president of the AIA and I've been on his back as much as I've been on Bob's back <laughs> you kind of when this interruption occurs when he's clearly having a conversation with the two of the members this person walking up is it's noticeable. It's it's obvious that the the conversation is being interrupted. And so my attention was drawn to that. And I realized that right away, the thing I realized right away is he he shook Carl's hand and he addressed the male architect and completely ignored the female architect that was standing there. Didn't even acknowledge her existence. And I'm like, ain't that a fucking thing? And I'm thinking to myself, you know. Usually it takes a couple of drinks in me to kind of get me to like tip over and and like 
get to a point of like <laughs> just saying how I really feel, which kind of bodes. It, it kind of makes it seem like that I come to these uh, uh, these these podcasts half in the bag. But... <laughs> <laughs> I know you're not. <laughs> yeah. So I just said to myself, I said it probably would just take one drink to get me to kind of say something, and I just was kind of really actively listening to the conversation. And it was interesting because myself, the other two male architects really made no move to correct the third male architect who made this ridiculous in front of the wall that we're committing to, that we've all committed. We've all stood there and committed to doing something to stop this kind of misogyny and this kind of assholishness. And we all just sat there. We didn't do anything. And I was part of that. And it really bothers me. And, and you know, I would like to, you know, say, well, Ken, you know what? The president was there. And, and maybe should, the president should have been big enough to redirect the conversation and say, hey, well, this is so-and-so. She's also responsible for this wall and she's an architect and I'd like you to meet her. Maybe that's, and there's part of me that was like, yeah, I can let myself off the hook and puff out my chest. He should have done that. I should have done that. Well, the guys that who had his handshake should have done that. We all should have done that. And that's that's kind of the problem. That's it on the soft power stuff. This is where we fail. This is where we fail. We fall. I mean, and, and again, I'm acknowledging my failure. I mean, I try to be conscious of that in my office when I have young interns and, and uh, trying to make sure that I don't let them kind of just sit on the sidelines and pretend like they're not worth getting noticed or they're, you know, so I, I'm, I try to do that and I'm trying to be conscious, but that was a moment that I either out of fear of something of this person saying something to me or embarrassing. And I don't know. It was, it was a failure. And then, <laughs> so Carl says he wants to get a photograph with the two people. And, and then, you know, this F says he wants to get a photograph with Carl. And so they get their photographs and they're, they're still standing there chatting and I'm still listening, actively listening, you know, call it what you want. But then I hear, this is where it just kind of like, I'm like, you know, wondering. Just one. Why I have one gin and tonic? Why didn't I just have one? Because this is what he said. He said this to Carl. He goes, this is a very dismissive comment about this Me Too movement inside the profession. And then Carl's like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it doesn't do anything with it. it. Doesn't like, you know, so I understand inside the profession, it's hard for anyone to think that this profession and these leaders take this shit seriously when the president is standing there talking to a former president of the same profession, listening to him prattle on about like this Me Too movement is an inconvenience for him and his white buddies. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I get it. I understand it. And I, I mean, I saw it. I heard it. It was there for it. Yeah. You're bringing the fact, and we all know this, we white older people know this, that we have certain powers that we can use our voices in certain ways. And sometimes we fail. And being able to admit that we failed at certain things is a big part of it. And I think reading through some of the commitment comments on the, the commitment wall, there's very general things like I commit to building a better future. I commit to being the best I can be, whatever, you know, sort of very general generic comments. And then there's very pointed things like I commit to recognizing that the path a young intern of color has had to travel in this licensing process is harder than the one that I have as an upper middle class white person. And that's just that's factual, right? I mean, that's like that's like saying this thing about not not um, not even just recognizing that it's been 50 years since Whitney Young gave that talk and we have not gotten any better. The fact that it's been 50 years, that's just factual. There's no commitment in recognizing that. It's the saying, well, 
we have maybe not done as well as we should have. That's what people sometimes just don't want to admit that weakness. And that is what drives me crazy. And that is part of what our profession, we are so afraid of failing. We're so afraid of showing weakness in the face of contractors or clients or regulations or, you know, all of the political forces that come together to make something get built. We're so afraid of showing weakness that we end up failing even worse than if we would sometimes just say, I made a mistake and I want to do better. So let's all learn together as a team to do better in the future. Yeah. Architects, I love us and hate us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I think what was, there was that one sad card, the one sad card that we could point to on the wall that was just sad. That you and I both got upset with. Yes. Yeah. It was really sad because it was like, when conflict arises, I will just learn to deal with it better. Something like that. I commit to making the best architecture I can even in conflict or under duress or something like that. It was basically saying, yeah, I still just... will commit to being a star architect, even though I have to suffer and abuse others to get there. Yes. <laughs> it was yes, something it was, like that. It was sad. It was sad. The implication was suffering is good. So I'm just going to keep suffering so that I can be a star someday. Yeah. Fuck that. <laughs> the, and the one thing that comes up all the time, right? And I see it on Twitter a lot is that white people, you know, hey, white people do better. Yeah. Yeah. It's as simple as that. I mean, you know, and there's a difference between being a racist and saying racist things. If you say something racist doesn't always mean you're a racist. You say something, you may not even intentionally mean a bias by it. But if somebody calls you out on it, what happens? Yeah. We get defensive. We get defensive because we, we're afraid to show we get defensive. that we made a mistake. We need to like, okay, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Fuck. I've been called on shit before and man, it sucks. And I've been defensive and I've been wrong in my defensiveness. Yeah. So I'm like, God, I hate that. So it's like, okay, I need to do better. You need I need to, to do better. About, That's I, all there is to it. Yeah. Do better. Simple as that. I call the police every time an AIA architect calls you out on your bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the first keynote, let's just quickly, because this is this is where I missed out a lot of on a lot of what Ken was involved in the first day because I got there a bit later. But I did do a commitment wall. We talked a little before the commitment wall, and Ken and I did. And then we went over to the first keynote, which was David Ajay was the sort of keynote speaker. And it was in Radio City Music Hall, which I have heard also from other architects. This is a complaint about this year's event in New York was that it wasn't really clear on the schedule that some events were taking place at the New School and some at the Javits Center and some at Radio City Music Hall. And you weren't able to factor commute time into your signing up for sessions. So you would sign up for a session and then have 10 minutes to get all the way across town to the New School to be at another one. And that just is not going to happen. It's not going to work. So that was a little disappointing. But so Ken and I took the bikes over to Radio City Music Hall to see the David Ajay lecture. I had not realized you had to get a special extra ticket to that event. So I was seated at the very upper third mezzanine level. And from that level, you could only see the bottom half of the slides. So the people around me, the architects around me, we were all kind of laughing about it. Like we're just sitting up there going, yeah, it, I bet it's a great building, but I can't see it because you know, <laughs> it's, it's Radio City Music Hall. There's this big, beautiful curtain proscenium. So that we were able to laugh about it. But the thing I did not laugh about at all, and that made me very angry and has led me to the position that I'm at now, which is that it's time for Robert Ivey to move on. We need a new executive director at the AIA National. What? I completely am committed to this belief right now. There were several keynotes, right? So there were several different people giving their, their, their 20 minutes or whatever. And the whole evening was so completely scripted. There were even moments that you'll talk about this, I'm sure, Ken, where where Carl Elefante had to say, you can applaud at that if you want to. Like it was so, yeah. everything was so scripted. They're reading off the teleprompters. And then 
Tamara Eagle Bull, FAIA, Native American architect, FAIA, comes out and talks about being told as a young child that Native American people would never be any kind of professional, maybe a teacher if they were lucky, but that being an architect as a female Native American was absolutely never going to be a possibility for her. And it was a very personal story and very heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's good to see that we have come farther than that now. But at this time, when she was a young girl, she was basically told this will never happen for you. And against all odds, she fought it and she became not only a registered architect, but she's now FAA. And then her time was up and everyone applauded and it was beautiful. She gave a beautiful, beautiful personal talk. And then out came Carl and Robert Ivey. And Robert Ivey says, gee, Radio City Music Hall is so pretty. Let's get on with the show. And he just kept talking. And there was no acknowledgement (laughs) of this very emotional and beautiful presentation that Tamara Eagle Bull had just given. And I just, again, this goes back to me saying, like, we're afraid to appear weak. Our leadership is afraid to speak off script ever. And that (laughs) makes me crazy. Yeah. So at that point, I was pretty much ready to leave. So I listened to David Ajay kind of half-heartedly because I could only see half the slides anyway. But I sat up there come in the third mezzanine coming to the realization that, yeah, I, I don't want our professional organization to be so terrified of the Justice Department's, you know, anti uh, antitrust decision and the fear that we might upset an architect who wants to design a prison with solitary confinement for children. And I, I'm tired of us being that scared to break free and say things that we are what we truly believe. So let the people that won't vote for Whitney Young being recognized, let them come forward and say who they are and go off script because I want to hear it. I want to get a new executive director at the national level. We need someone younger, someone who's not an old white man. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that, that was the, you know, the kind of the, the takeaway from this one where last year was really, really well handled. This one was like, let's pay lip service yeah. to diversity and not really talk about what needs to happen with inside the profession. So you get the kind of lip service that gets paid on some of these, um, some of the, the resolutions. And then you see the people that are running for office are all white. And then when you ask them specific questions, they're afraid to really respond as as though they were human beings and and really kind of fall back on. They're afraid to say, you know what? It was interesting. The new vice president and uh, 2020 president-elect, one of the questions was, what have you done to work to achieve diversity in the profession in, in, in your in your chapter? And the response is, was, <laughs> was kind of like, well... You know, this African-American wasn't running and I decided to, you know, encourage him to run. I'm like, wow, she really did literally say (laughs) there was an African-American I helped out. Uh You know, I helped out an African. I mean, instead of just look, the honest, just say the honest response, because I haven't. And I think many people in that room haven't. And And it's not it's not a bad thing to say that I haven't done a lot. Right. And because you're only pointing to what we already know inside the profession, right. which is there aren't enough African-Americans in the, in the profession. There aren't, despite what you may feel at the conference, because I know there's a lot of white people walking around that conference going, holy shit. And I'm one of them going, this is a fucking diverse profession. It is. There's a lot of black architects. There are. But the, and I, there are. The, mo- but, the time I see the great. most black architects is when I go to the AIA National. Like, yeah. you know, it's and amazing. But because you... Why is it, though? Part of the reason is that we forget that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Part of the reason is that we forget that there are 
protectorates that that uh, where they're in the Caribbean that right. have African heritage architects right. who aren't Americans. Right. I mean, or who maybe I don't want to say they're not American. I don't. I don't know how. How I mean, they're in the AIA as an associate, so I don't know. Yeah, you don't know what their citizenship is, but they are of African descent and they are practicing architecture within our regional community. Exactly. Right. And I talk, we talked to, you know, we talked to m- many African-American architects and architects from the islands. And, you know, yeah. David Cuthbert came from Jamaica. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's certainly no shortage of black architects in the profession. It's just that when we go home to our, our communities, they're not there. Right. So I'm not saying, hey, white architect, go find yourself a black architect. I'm just saying it, it's okay to say, you know what? That's you're pointing to a problem inside the profession right. that we need to solve. Right. And it's okay to say, I haven't. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, I will just touch on the session we went to. It was the next morning, right? With four presenters and three of them have been on the podcast. So we're going to go come gunning for you for, for number four. It was a, a panel put together by Equity by Design, and it was Rosa Sheng, FIA, and Garrett Jacobs from Open Architecture Collaborative, who we have had on the show, and Catherine Darnstadt of Latent Design, who we've had on several times, and then Michael Ford of Hip Hop Architecture. We have not had him on the show yet. So, Paul, we need to reach out to him. And again, Michael told an incredibly personal and revealing story about how he started doing hip hop architecture. And it was beautiful. And I think people in the room teared up. I know I did. It was just to put yourself out there and make your personal connection to the field that we all love so much. I just think we need to do more of that. And, you know, and Catherine also, as always, she talked about, you know, she was, what did she, she went from employed and like moving up the ladder to like um, six months later, she was unemployed and pregnant and principal of her own firm. Yeah. And it was a struggle. And she talked about how hard it was to go through that. And, you know, Garrett Jacobs took over a failing architecture for humanity and and turned it into something new and had to rethink it. Like, we're all good at, as problem solvers, we should all be good at dealing with adversity. And talking about that, the things that we've overcome and how we've had to suffer setbacks and then keep going, that's what binds us all together as a community of architects. We can't be embarrassed to share those things. Yeah, it was... Uh... That was particularly rewarding. It was. It's one of the highlights for me. It was a was wonderful a, panel session. discussion. And, and it, they all talked about their own paths, basically, their own, their own paths yeah. to the profession. Yeah, I think that that's, I think you brought us something pretty key in that, you know, Michael's story, mm-hmm. so heartbreaking. And at the same time, wonderful that someone can be so in touch with their own emotions right. that they can be able to talk about it. Right. And it, it could be, you know, I think for many it's a generational thing. Yes, um, certainly. There are people certainly older than us that just, you know, they grew up in a time that were, you know, emotion was not right. really something that was easily shared certainly. because of their upbringing. And, and certainly I think we do better. And then the generation behind us does better and everybody's going to do better. So, but when we get Michael on, I think it's going to be important that he, he tells that story again, because I think it's, it's, it's a testament to the spirit of a particularly remarkable couple of remarkable individuals, yeah. um, him and his wife, yeah. um, you know, yeah. to go through that experience and come out on the other side, you know, intact. It's, it's a rare, mm-hmm. it's rare. 
And again, just because we, you know, we're older, we've been around a long time. We've talked about this a long time. There were people in that audience, young women and men of color who stood up and said at the, during the question period, I, you know, I really didn't know there were people who thought the same way as I do about architecture. And I've never seen this as an example within the profession. And we spoke one night to a, um, Ken and I had drinks with a, with a young man one night named Max. And, uh, he also was said, you know, Ken started talking about the kind of work he does with uh, Ken, your your work with All Squared, you know, that works with former offenders and helps them reintegrate into society and the vegan the herbivorous butchers and the, you know, the the sort of social justice work that you do around your work. And this young architect said, you know, I didn't I had not really heard of people doing this kind of work. Like, I feel like there's a huge there is a, a, a groundswell of people doing work that very much is socially involved, that is very local, that's very personal. And yet there are still young graduates and interns that are not able to see it at all in their professional lives. And coming out and communicating with other architects is the way to do it, the way to see it, you know? And you know, what's interesting is that uh, inside the profession, inside the halls of the leadership, they like to point to us, those of us, and I am cautiously including myself in the us mm-hmm. because there are certainly Catherine and Michael are certainly much better examples of it yeah, than, of than I am. But look at those paths and call it alternative paths. And if anything should be a normal path, right. it's the path that they're on. <laughs> exactly. The alternative paths are the ones that are count, uh, antithetical to what we believe in our values. Right. And th- we should start classifying anyone doing work for ICE and for, for the prison industrial complex. Those are alternative paths. Right. If you decide that you want to build prisons, then we want to put you on the outlier spectrum. Exactly. We want to make you as alternative as possible inside the profession. Right. So there is a path for you in case that's the, you, you need to get your jelly on with uh, your S&M fantasies. Um, <laughs> <Stop>. so, <laughs> but no, seriously. Yeah. That it's perfectly normal to want to be in the profession in a way that is truly responding to and benefiting society and building a better place for all of us, not just making a pretty building or getting an invoice paid because you designed a, a prison for a for-profit detention center company, right? <laughs> yep. So Saturday was particularly fascinating. It was probably the most worthwhile four hours. And I don't know how you felt about it with uh, the time that you spent there, Donna, but the the four hours we spent at Architecture Lobby. I was crushed that I had to leave early. Crushed. Yeah, I was too. I really, I had a, a, you know, when I come out to the East Coast, I have, have, you know, commitments to everything I'm doing, plus the personal commitments on top of that. But the Architecture Lobby event was probably the most compelling experience that I've had um, going to one of these conferences. It was. It honestly was. It was amazing. It was so well done and so inspiring. You know, where you go to the AIA conference and you're talked at by the leaders of the profession, you're talked at by other people in the profession. Here was a room where the table was centered in the room and the audience was around the table. And yes, the Michael Sorkin was there and uh, Mitch McEwen and Anna Marie Leon. And then Reinhold Martin was there, who's another big muckety-muck in the academia. So we had all these powerful voices at the table. And once they got done with their presentation, it was open up to the audience. So there was actually this give and take going back and forth. And it was really, um, that was, you know, the first session. And there was another session. And there 
there was another session. And it was just a really great opportunity to see a profession engaged with the issues of the day in a way that really manifested itself, I think, in a really powerful statement going forward. It powerful, so powerful that the AIA sought to read or tweet about it. I don't know if you caught that. Donna. They did. It was kind of fascinating. It I was, was fascinated. Yes. I mean, again, <laughs> and I have to say, someone within the AIA was thinking, this is what's important. This is important to our profession. So even though it wasn't an officially sponsored event, I it's worth talking about. And it was it was such a great event. It was the the architecture lobby. They just called it the Think In, and it was uh, wonderful, so eye opening, and so like you said, so accessible. It just made you really yeah. It was completely the opposite of the keynote speaker up on the stage at Radio City Music Hall. This was people who care about this stuff sitting down trying to do hard work together in a way. Yeah, it was it was amazing. And Peggy Deemer gave a, a sort of opening. 10 minutes on the architect as worker, which is really the thrust of the whole architecture lobby is to talk about the architect as a worker, as a not an artist, not a, um, you know, not not a unpaid intern, but as a worker who has knowledge that is worth being paid for and that should reflect the society that we live in. And oh, man, it was just incredible. So, so good. I had to leave early, sadly, but I'm so glad that we went to that. So yeah, that that was a really good event, Paul. And Paul, you sound good. I, I made it. It was great to see you and your son. Uh, you seem to be having a great time in New York City. And we, you know, we we talked a little. I mean, we we met up before because I was at the uh, at the interview that you did with um, Miguel at the for the WeWork event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I flew in. I guess the day before the conference started to do that that conversation with Miguel. I, I brought my my son with me because my wife and my daughter were in. Uh, Peru visiting uh, a new baby in the family. So I brought my son with me to New York and we had the best time doing everything but the AIA convention, which, um, <laughs> but it was, it was so great to meet up with you guys, you, Donna and Ken, you guys, and David Cuthbert from yes. uh, longtime Archonector that goes by Architectophilia. Is that Architectophilia? Yeah. Ar- Architectophilia. Yeah. It was, uh, in from Jamaica. Yes. And great guy. Really cool. And it was a exciting place to come together in New York, right at the Hudson Yards, where um, there's much, much going on architecturally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> intense, intense little inter, intersection of architecture and architecture. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> architecture ground zero in a way. Yeah, it was yeah, uh, very much. <laughs> I mean, in a way, it was wonderful that we were in the Javits Center for the com- conference because it was right there, right, right next door. I was not expecting to like Hudson Yards and I loved it. I really loved everything about the towering shimmering, the way the High Line cuts through it, the crazy shed and even the, the Heather with thing. I I can do without the Heatherwick thing, the vessel, but whatever. It's there. It's fine. People will enjoy it. But I went back curious and looked at uh, a post on Archonnect from a couple years ago when some renderings of Hudson Yard were put up and the derision against it was pretty intense. And I've heard a lot of people, I mean, one of our own guests, Stephen Hall, said he's got some issues with the Hudson Yards. I loved it. I, I was enchanted. I can't help it. I was completely enchanted. Loved it. What did you guys think? I'm pretty excited about it too. Um, I think the shed is quite um, quite a different experience in person than from mm-hmm. from photos because the photos tend to take a, a very different perspective. I mean, it's much more intimate in person, yeah. even though it's still covered in in you know the plastic wrap and everything. But that's such a it's such a unique architectural experience right there. You know, starting at the Hudson Yards and then walking down the High Line. There's so many iconic 
buildings, you know, yeah. just in a, in a stretch of yeah. about a mile that it's cool that, you know, that the general public, and I mean, it's such a international tourist destination now, the it High is. Line. It's cool that, that, you know, the mainstream population is being exposed to the work of so many interesting architects. It's interesting because it, it reminds me, you know, when, when you go to a zoo and you're like walking down the yeah. path and you're looking <laughs> at this. And so there's quite the spectacle that the Highland provides one uh, and, and the ability to turn the uh, the gaze back on those people who kind of, you know, that's what's always fascinated me about the Highline. It's these people who buy these ridiculously spendy condos along the Highline and then have the audacity to put up blinds. I mean, <laughs> why the fuck did you move there in the first place, you dope? <laughs> Well, I mean, we all we all know that nobody actually lives in these buildings. Well, yeah, no, you're absolutely, that's yeah. absolutely correct. No one lives there. It's just to uh, stop the the sun damage on the on the furniture that doesn't get sat on. Yep, and the wolf ranges that don't get cooked on. Um, but the Zaha is beautiful. It is so beautiful. It you know it the those curving metal panels and the the shape everything about it. It is just beautiful. Again, really nicely detailed, you know, oh, surprisingly, uh, because of the that complex form that it yeah. is. It's just uh, you get a very up close view of that building from the High Line. Yeah, and it's uh, shockingly well well constructed. Shockingly well constructed. It's a crafted building, even though it's this big swoopy, you know, parametric thing. It's beautifully, beautifully crafted. So I'm sorry, just a trademark uh, note. It's patrometric. Patrometric, yes. <laughs> It's a patrometric knocked it out of the park on that one. I, I still go to the High Line to check out, see if there's anybody naked in, 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 at the standard, yeah, of though, course. because I think that's what people go <laughs> to the standard. I figure, you know what? Why? So, you know, just because I'm like, who's going to be? Who am I going to see the idiot standing up there naked, yep. swinging his swinging? You know, it's funny when I walk by the standard on the High Line, I like intentionally don't look because. <laughs> Everyone knows you can see naked people, so I don't want to look like that perv that's just hanging out by himself, you know, watching the, the standard. But you know what's going to be really, really quite nice, I think, is this opera that Diller Scafidio and Renfro are putting together along the High Line, a full mile-long opera. Oh, really? Yeah. They're going back to their roots, huh? That is going back to their roots. You're right. Yeah, they were heavily, you know, if you look at their, what I love about, I still have their monograph, their first one, Flesh. It, uh, they, they did a lot of performance-based work. Um, so that, that seems kind of rooted in who they were. Yeah, it has been. And I'm still mad at them about the Folk Art Museum, and I never will get over that anger. But they do do beautiful work frequently. And they rip down beautiful work, too. So they, God, exactly. <laughs> They're very, they're very selective with uh, what they tear with down. What they rip down. <laughs> it has to be of a certain quality. On a less architect y note, Ken and David Cuthbert and I were all together when we met with you, Paul, because we had slipped over to Hoboken to go visit one of Ken's former professors and friends and see a passive house condo project that he's working on. And that was amazing. Hoboken was a super cool city. And the how the condo, the passive house condo itself is going to be incredible. And speaking of things that are beautifully crafted, the level of detail and attention to this thing. Oh my God, it's going to be amazing. Ken, do you want to give a little background on who we were meeting with? Yeah. So John Nastasi Architects. Um, John Nastasi is, uh, was my first professor at NJIT. And um, he then went on to Harvard and he teaches at Harvard and he has a product architecture lab at uh, Stevens Institute of Technology. So his, his office and uh, the, one of the classes I think he teaches at Stevens has been really focused on the passive house and uh, they do a lot of the solar decathlons. They won, I think either last, uh, not 
this past year, I think the year before they won, the Stevens team won, and he also built his own work. So it was wonderful to see this particular project. It's the first of its kind in the United States. I think that's a claim that he would authenticate. But, um, you know, the, I think the the big the big thrill for us was to see an eight foot cantilever that was thermally broken and was only eight inches thick, which it doesn't sound like it's a big deal. But for a passive house design, apparently is a pretty big deal. It's no small achievement. So we got to see this pretty remarkable building and, and uh, get toured from top to bottom. And uh, it's going to be a very exciting project when it's completed. And I, I mean, I, I have philosophical arguments with calling that a true cantilever, since in fact, the concrete doesn't cantilever. It's just the rebar that cantilevers. But I understand <laughs> that to get that thermal break, you have to do this very, very tricky detail, which I love. But then the sort of flip side to that was on the upper level condos in the the public like um, family room, you know, great room type spaces that have these gorgeous views across the city to Hudson Yards. So the view from those rooms is to the Hudson Yards projects. He did these columns, these concrete round columns that are concrete poured into a just a sonotube with a PVC lining. So it's poured, the concrete is poured against the PVC plastic tube shape. And it feels like marble. I, you, I mean, I couldn't stop stroking these columns. They feel like marble. They are so beautiful. So there's this sort of very high-tech uh, thermal broken using high-tech, uh, you know, this special stainless rebar and the insulation to, to make the thermal break. And then there's just this very sort of simple, dumb, let's pour the concrete into a plastic tube. And it's this incredibly beautiful concrete finish. Oh, such a great building. It was such such a delight to walk through there in construction and really see the guts of the building. So good. He's a genius, that guy, John Nastasi. Amazing. Did you guys take any photos? A few. Yes. A few. Can we, uh, can we share some? Yeah. And maybe he has some, I don't know if uh, John Nastasi has taken any photos of it as well that we might be able to. Yeah, he get. probably has some good pictures. Yeah, he's very, very intensive. Uh, and his photographs are pretty precisely derived as well so i can i can hit him up for that i'm dying to see this project based on everything i've heard about it yeah it's beautiful yeah it was great to hear him talk about you know most he said he said you know most um he works with the the engineer that he works with out of new york city does all the super talls in new york city and um he said where most people most structural engineers wouldn't get you four feet on a and a 10 or 12 inch slab this guy will do eight feet as long as you give him eight inches yeah and so, I mean, I always love structural engineers because the older they are, they're like, they're like the, they're the best crafts. They're like craftsmen. Uh, they they're are. like, yeah. they're like masons. I mean, the older they are, yeah. the simpler the project is for them yeah. because they've seen everything. And I stop questioning structural engineers when they get to a certain point and, you know, when they get 30 years in the profession, you can kind of go, whatever he says, we're going to do right. because right. They, they know their shit. They've seen everything. Yep. Yep. And, you know, there, I think there's a lot of um, newer requirements for structural engineering. And then there's all the new programming of, you know, how they actually run the calculations for the forces and whatnot. But you get an older person who has experience and has been around a long time. They can really do it not on the fly, but they they know the materials and the strengths so well that they can they know what they're talking about. So you trust them. Yeah. They're not just relying on the computer to make those determinations. They know what they're doing. And yeah, it, it is a cantilever. It is. I, I will give it that. It is a cantilever, even though philosophically the fact that the concrete is not continuous, it it, it it irks my love of concrete to break it like that. I still can. It's fine. 
I love it. It's beautiful. So it was fun, Paul. I have to say that um, I expected more given the the high stakes of of having a conference in New York City. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you go from, which is really kind of weird, I think, in a lot of ways for many people that were at the conference in Orlando where you don't expect, you know, it was a pretty horrible site to be at. It wasn't uh, connected to anything walkable. Right. Everything about the area was just really just patently the wrong place for architects to be. Maybe the right place in a lot of ways. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But to be honest with you, I took away a lot of good from last year that I really saw. Even in my own chapter, I saw them take the bull by the horns and really yeah. hone that message from last year into a, a really targeted and precise path for moving forward as a profession inside of Minnesota. And so they didn't let me down. And I think going there this year, you know, you have a, this expectation where it's, you know, really where architecture is, you know, where architecture is is really seen by not just architects, but by everyone. Yeah. And this idea that they were going to come there with a, with a better, you know, a more you know, building on the momentum from last year, coming forward with a really stronger message and, and you know, really kind of taking what they've learned from last year and moving the ball forward. It really was, the momentum was lost a bit and they didn't even do the, you know, I mean, all the things we fail that I, I really hammer uh, Ivy about the, I look up campaign wasn't there this year. So there was no video, there was no competition. The, I listen, there was no listening campaign again for 2018. There's not going to be one. So the idea that the profession has taken away from 2016, the sense that, that we've given them purpose has really been lost on the broader leadership and is really, they've dropped the ball. And if anything points to the idea that we need younger, yep. more bold leadership inside yep. the profession, taking the ball forward. And there was, a, there was some really, I kind of, I wish I know, knew who it was. I think she was from the Baltimore chapter of the AIA yep. at the business meeting was really, really, really hammering the profession and really hammering a home a message that was like we it had a bunch of us standing up and applauding because it was really a bold choice of language and a bold message and i think part of the problem inside the profession is that when you see who runs for these these uh at large positions or for president or whatever they see an f by the name and they kind of go well i gotta wait till i get that by my name before i can run for something and that's the wrong mindset they have to move forward they have to take the bull by the horns decide that they have a message and they have something to say and run. Don't wait to be asked. This profession is not going to ask you to run. This profession is not going to give you, it's not going to give you permission. You know, this is the thing when we're building buildings inside of cities where we don't often want to talk to the code official, instead of asking for permission, ask for forgiveness. So you're, if you're waiting for somebody to tell you it's your time, you're just going to be waiting forever. So next year is uh, Vegas. Donna, we're going to Vegas, right? I am definitely going to Vegas. It's going to be so stupid and I can't wait. We're all going to be there with a suitcase of drugs. <laughs> well, you're the one who has them legally out where you live, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's, not... it's going to be ridiculous and fun. Yes. Yeah. And then uh, LA is coming up too in the following year. Excellent. What? That'll be, yeah, I didn't realize that. That'll be great. God, I haven't been to LA in decades. I can't, I need to get back out there. I see they're getting back on the A's again. Back on the A's? The A's? Remember there was like, <laughs> it was always part of their branding, the A. Oh, the A, yeah. So New York kind of blew it out of the water. Yeah. It was like Orlando, Philadelphia, yeah. Atlanta. Yeah. 
And then, uh, yeah, that the now it's Las Vegas, and now we can get back to the, back to the, the safe, the safe, the safe letters. And I do, I love the font, the AIA font that they. I love that branding. I think it's fantastic. So I, I, I hope they do get back on the A's, Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> Does that wrap us up? I think it does, unless you guys have any parting uh, words. The only other thing I would say about New York is that I left the architecture lobby thinking a little early because I went to a Broadway show because one of my best friends from undergraduate architecture school is now a Tony Award winning uh, set designer on Broadway. Scott Pask is his name. And he and I have been friends since we were 18. And so I went to see a show that he had worked on um, that won a lot of awards and um, then to hang out with him in his apartment. And he's uh, he's just wonderful. And he's one of those examples of people that went to architecture school and decided, OK, hey, there's actually something different I actually want to do. And he went and did it. And he's now a big celebrated set designer. So it was great to catch up with him again. And, um, you know, we share all those old architecture school war stories. So it was just great to see him. <laughs> I'd love to get him on our uh, working out of the box series. Oh, yeah. He'd probably be into that. Yeah. Can you can you ask? I him? will. Yeah, that'd be a good one. All right, Ken, any parting words? No, I think I said enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you know what? That's, that's what this one is about. It's about me going going off. Yeah. You know, I, I applauded last year. I mean, they, you know, don't forget. I mean, remember from um, Pentagram. Yeah, Michael Beirut What's talked about us doing Michael a Beirut good- Michael talked about good, us last year. So. I, think this, I think that our conversation around this one actually reflects pretty accurately what we saw and were focused on at the convention this year. So good. Yeah. Well, th- thanks for uh, sharing your story, guys, of the convention for for me and everyone else that did not attend this year. And uh, thanks to everybody else for listening to this week's show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. And you can send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com if you have any questions. And if you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us and uh, giving us a review on, on iTunes. Till next time.